Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Dennis Dragovich about his new book, Religion and Post-Conflict State Building, Roman Catholic and Sunni Islamic Perspective, what is put out by Paul Grave McMillan in 2015. Dennis Dragovich, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Christian. Uh, Dennis, before we get going, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I have come to scholarship uh, later in my life. I was initially working as a humanitarian aid worker overseas, and in particular in war zones and post-conflict war zones. So beginning uh, very early in 2000, after having completed a master's degree at Georgetown University, the master's in foreign service program, I got a job in East Timor, Uh, a breakaway uh, half of an island that used to be part of the Indonesian archipelago. And then from from there to South Sudan, which was part of Sudan at the time, uh, from there to Iraq, uh, back to Sudan, back to Iraq, and and so forth, and those sorts of uh, um, postings. And some of the things that struck me while I was working that made me think about getting into some uh, research and scholarship was that all of the time in every location that we were in, we would always be doing everything we can to replicate this, the systems and structures that work in our Western world uh, and, and often overlook, um, disengage or, or, or just ignore um, the local power structures, those groups that were so influential within the, the world that the people lived as opposed to those structures that we thought were important. And one of the most important ones was religious groups. Now, in in East Timor, it was the Catholic Church. In South Sudan, it was um, the churches. Uh, In North Sudan, in Darfur, uh, Islam is a very important part. And in Iraq, it was Shia and Sunni Islam. So in every location, there were very influential players that made me think um, there's something wrong here. And so... Um, it, it took me some time and, and a degree of frustration with, with our efforts to, to say maybe I, I should do some research. And um, in, in 2011, I ended up in St. Andrews University in Scotland to do a PhD uh, in the School of Divinity. Now, that's an interesting distinction also that I think needs, needs to be said is that whereas most people and academics in particular, when they look at um, when they look at religion and the role of religion, they look at it as myths or as civil society organizations and, and, and put them alongside NGOs or other, any other group. For the people within the communities that I live in, it was very different. It was a source of knowledge, inspiration, a, a path to how they should live their lives 
a guide to decision making and and so the only way to study uh religion from that perspective was to embrace it and and that means engaging with theology which took me to the school of divinity at, at saint andrews university so that's kind of the long answer to your short question about how did i get to actually um studying this uh, this topic so when you went to study theology, was that your, I mean, you came in with the idea that you were going to use this to write about the larger world, so it wasn't so much, I mean, you certainly wanted to learn more about religion, but it was, would you approach it as a purpose of making your work applicable to state building, or is that just something that came about uh, after after the fact? No, no, absolutely. So intent was to learn more about where I was working and what we were doing wrong. Uh, now, I certainly have an interest myself um, in, in religion, and, and I am religious, but it wasn't as if I had chosen to take the path of becoming a cleric, and then it just so happened that um, I chose to write a book about state building. It, it was the intent to begin with. Um, the UK system of, of uh, doing PhDs, it's very much uh, from the get go from the beginning you're on your own doing your own research so it wasn't mm -hmm. it was immersed in uh, years of deep theological um, thinking uh, i was from day one allowed to engage with my topic that's that's interesting and you you've spoken a bit about it already but the listeners might want to know a little bit more uh how you came to this topic uh, of your book and the the main arguments, I guess you can you can get into as we go through the interview. But you know, what is it that you know uh, that brought you to the, to the topic? So sure, sure. Well, look from a practitioner's perspective, which is what brought me to to it. You're coming into countries where religion is so important to people, and and I always rattle off some statistics uh, that some of them are in in my book, and others I've just come across as. Uh, in, in my reading. And for example, I did some research on uh, how important is religion to people in fragile and failed states. And it's 80, uh, over 80% of people have confidence in religious institutions in those countries. 91% of people say it's important in their lives. And this compares to, you know, the high teens, low 20s, even 30 for most Western countries. So there's a huge difference there, and you feel it when you when you go and live in these countries where the rhythm of the day is dictated by uh, religious occurrences. Uh, it, it, just as an example, in Iraq, there are 150 religious days on the calendar. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone gets a public holiday in every one of those days, but depending on the region and the, and the governor and the location, uh, there are a huge number of public holidays. And then on top of that, uh, because of pilgrimages, because of road closures for safety and security, uh, every, your life is constantly affected by religion. The, the, the Muazin's call from the uh, mosque uh, will wake you up. Um, the way people dress is influenced by their religious beliefs. So it's, it's those sorts of things that made me think it's such an important part in people's lives that we can't ignore it. Um, and another example uh, beyond Iraq, let's look at Afghanistan. 70% um, of people in Afghanistan said religious leaders should be consulted on political matters, you know. So they think that even in the realm of politics, 
religious leaders should be involved in one way or another. Uh, so it's not just Islamic countries also. You can go to other countries um, that are Christian countries, uh, not as, a, as a, to the degree of political involvement, but certainly as far as being important people's life. Now, I, uh, later on, as we progress through this interview, I'll, I'll explain why there's that difference between uh, Islam's uh, influence on people's view of its right place in the political space as opposed to Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good segue into, before we get into more of the particulars, just to outline, if you would, uh, the major points that you tried to make in this book. And actually, I mean, you do very successfully, but I was wondering if you could say a little more about that. Sure. So, so I explained from a practitioner's perspective the impetus for having uh, some research undertaken in this direction. It, it simply hadn't been done. There's no um, clear theoretical basis upon which um, decision makers, policy decision makers would say, we really need to engage with religious institutions. Now, most people, uh, as the literature uh, states at the moment, would be lost in explaining what benefit would there be for engaging with religious institutions. So the, the book or the research I undertook, the book um, explains, first of all, how religion can contribute to state building. So that's more of a social sciences, political sciences perspective. And it starts looking at different mechanisms through which this particular institution can contribute. And so what I do is I borrow from other people's work and to say, okay, what does it take for there to be successful state building? And, and what, before I go on to that, let's just clarify what is state building. Um, historically, we hear a lot about nation building. So these are the long generational processes that have led to uh, countries being um, having a sense of nationhood. So the French people feel like they are French. Uh, the, the people of Italy feel like they're Italian. And so there's that sense of nationhood, which is having a common culture, language, history uh, that brings them together. Now, not all people, uh, not, not all states are nations, and not all nations are states. So you have, for example, the Kurds in northern Iraq, southern Turkey, that are a nation of people who have a common history, culture, language, but they don't have their own geographically bounded state. And then you have states that aren't nations. And this is in particular as a result of the colonial era where boundaries were drawn up across what were natural um, uh, natural groupings of people. And so you see in parts of Africa and the Middle East, a lot of tensions across borders and, and natural movements between borders because the borders mean nothing compared to the actual relationships on the ground. And so when we talk about state building, I, I distinguish it from this idea of the long-term bringing together of a people. It's actually the short-term effort of building the institutions that uh, are required for a functioning uh, unit bounded geographically, a, a state. So examples are 
recently, the international intervention in Iraq from 2003 onwards was and to rebuild the state in Afghanistan after the decimation of the authority structures and institutions during Taliban, and then the invasion in 2001, there was an effort to rebuild the state. Uh, probably looking forward into the future, the same will have to be done in Syria because of how the country now has completely fallen apart. Uh, there is no central uh, all central authority, institutions that cater to the needs of the people, uh, stability, security, legitimacy, these things are all lacking. So that's, that's what state building is in a nutshell. And so I took what were other people's work with regards to what is required for successful state building. And, and there are three elements, basically. Firstly, you need a legitimate authority. And that means an authority that is uh, acknowledged by the people as being legitimate, that has some sort of legal validity uh, in, within a particular context. And thirdly, the, the, its justification for being in authority transcends generations. So it's not as if it's made up its own reasons for being in power. That's more just a dictatorship that has, has very limited legitimacy. For there to be legitimacy, it has to base its justification for being there uh, on some sort of historical narrative that is true to the people. And, and so th this is the first one. It's, a state needs legitimacy. The other one is it needs security and stability, which is, I think, straightforward and common sense. Most people would say for if you don't have security, stability, you will have a failed state. So something like Somalia, uh, it's not a functioning state because everyone's at, at war with each other. And the last one, uh, there are three, is, is the provision of basic needs. So for a state to be a successful state, it needs to be able to ensure that people have food, water, um, you know, access to basic services and things like that. If a state has those three, leg legitimacy, security, and basic needs, then it will be a stable, uh, successful state. If it's lacking any of those, it will struggle, it will be fragile, or it will fail. So that's the first element. I was looking at how can religion contribute to any of those three. And I'll go, I'll go through that in, in, in detail, but just to go back to the broader arguments of the book. The second element, so there were two parts to this book. The first is, is, is the social science, political science. How do we, how does religion contribute? The second element is why would it contribute? And this is where I delve into the theology of the two religions in the book, because it's so easy for us as Western academics or decision makers, policy makers is to presume that every religion will want to contribute its resources to the same ideals and pursuits that we have, which is basically the, the liberal peace idea, a democratic country um, that caters to its people based on state boundaries, that is, is secular, and, and, and so forth. Now, I think that's a wrong presumption to make. Uh, religious institutions have incredible uh, resources. The Catholic Church, for example, 
has the same number of hospitals, runs the same number of hospitals around the world as there are in the entire United States, around five and a half thousand hospitals. They have 17 and a half thousand primary healthcare clinics. The legitimacy of the Catholic Church in some countries is incredibly high. With, with, within Islam, there is also a, a very powerful mechanism uh, of its um, ability to contribute to legitimacy because of its legalistic nature. Uh, it also is very strong in the provision of, of uh, food and humanitarian needs through its process of zakat, of um, effectively a taxation for social services. So these are powerful institutions, uh, and, and for us to just presume that they would lend these resources towards Western endeavors, I think, is naive. But that's where, at the moment, most decision makers um, form their thoughts. And so what you have then in, in, in this aspect, in this part, and, and I'll go through that in, detail, in more detail, but it's basically me arguing that the old way of doing things, and that is gaming um, religious institutions through rational choice theory or some sort of utilitarian theory or some other um, idea that's common to other institutions like businesses. For, for example, you know, companies pursue profits. Um, political parties pursue votes. So what do religious institutions pursue? Now, most people would say adherence or, or believers or tax breaks or increased income. But I argue that's not the case. That may be the case in some particular circumstances with particular individuals, but you've got to start from a generic a foundation, and that foundation has to be the institu institution's theology. So they're basically the two arguments. It's how can a religious institution contribute to post-conflict state building? And then the second part of the book is why would they contribute uh, and looking in the theology of those two uh, religions. Yeah, it's, it's very well put. And uh, I would uh, you also, I would ask you the question why you chose to focus on Bosnia in the, in the last chapter before, before the conclusion. Well, thanks. That's right. So it, it, what I did then, having created that um, theoretical framework and theological insight, then I actually applied it to a particular case study. Now, the reason I did that is because being a practitioner at heart, I, I want to make sure that it's more than just a theory that I'm talking about, but actually see how this can be applied. And one of the reasons I chose Bosnia and Herzegovina were because I can speak the language, um, having my, my parents come from that region. So that gives me a leg up and an insight, but also because it's one of the unique uh, few places in the world where you have the distinct involvement of uh, different religions in a post-conflict env environment. So in Iraq, it's, it's Islam with Sunni Shia. In uh, South Sudan, in the post-conflict state building of South Sudan, it's largely Christian churches uh, and the divisions amongst them know Islam. In East Timor, it was Roman Catholicism. But in Bosnia and Herzegovina, it was quite unique in that there were actually, this was one case where it had two different religions. And, and so to me, that was an opportunity, not necessarily to compare and contrast, but to uh, to show that actually different theologies 
different worldviews, different organizational structures, different liturgies and rituals of the religions can contribute differently, does influence how these institutions can contribute to, to, to state building. Yeah, it was a very interesting uh, case study to, to read, and we'll talk about it uh, more in a, in a little bit. But before we get into the particulars of Sunni Islam versus the Catholic Church, I have to pick your brain. Uh, by training, I'm an historian, and just not to, not to beat around the bush, but we historians love contingency. They love, you know, we, we, we don't really jump at the theory building of social science, and it amazes me that when I, the more I read, I see modernization theory keep coming up as something that people put a lot of stock into, or rational choice models. And you obviously, you know, bring up the limitations of that. And I, I guess my question is, do you see your work as part of a, a growing trend in trying, in moving international relations uh, books in the, in the area of trying to account for things that aren't quantifiable, that don't necessarily lend themselves to hard data? Do you see yourself as part of the, a trend in the field, or is that just something you're, you're bringing to the table and people are just kind of going, oh, well, well, we'll stick to what we know best? Well, a couple of things on that. Firstly, you mentioned modernization theory, which I find fascinating. So in academia, modernization theory has been absolutely demolished. It, it, it's still there, but as far as a mechanism by which countries um, progress, I won't say develop because that is a term that's more associated with the Western view of what uh, the direction of progression. But let's say the way that countries progress, it, it is not necessarily how modernization theory would have thought it should be, which was basically following the footsteps of Western countries. And then there's that particular process. And, and that how it ties into religion is that part of the process of modernizing is displacing the role of religion from the public uh, square to the private sphere. That's one of the um, fundamental elements of modernization theory with regards to religion. Now, in academia, that's been absolutely demolished. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it is a much more of a Western European uh, um, situation where, uh, as those countries have developed, that religion has been displaced. In other countries, it's not the case. In, in particular, the United States, the religion has not been displaced in, a, in any uh, measurable way. There, and then so people, academics now trying to amend that to say, well, you know, it's not necessarily religion, it's spirituality that has remained, but as far as the institutional religion that has been displaced. But for me, what's interesting from a state-building perspective is that a lot of the policy decision makers, um, senior bureaucrats, people in the United Nations, they seem to still embrace modernization theory. Now, they, they may explicitly say it or implicitly speak to it. Uh, either way, their ideas and the way that money is allocated and programs that are developed are based on modernization theory. And I, I guess that makes sense because a lot of the decision makers who are now in the 40s and 50s and 60s were educated at a time when modernization theory was prominent in academia. And so there's this lag of, of 30 years or so with what academia knows and speaks about and what practitioners are actually directing their resources towards within what kind of mechanism. And so 
absolutely there is this trend. So one trend is away from modernization theory, and the other trend from the religious perspective is that probably in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, there was a return to looking at the role of religion in international relations in particular. And that was accelerated uh, after 2001 with 9-11 and the focus on, focus on Islam. So there certainly has been a, a renewal of attention on religion in international affairs. But what it hasn't done and what I'm trying to do is bring it back into a particular field. So... The theory at a, at a geopolitical level has been well <coughs> responded to, uh, but at specific operational levels, in particular cases, such as post-conflict state building, it hasn't been. So what I'm doing is contributing, I think, to a renewal of a general movement towards re-including religion in a lot of these um, fields. Yeah, and, and that's a good segue because you do that very well. And, and, and what I liked about your book is something. This is why I love doing this job. I get to learn stuff and read books. Uh, stuff that really broadens my horizons is when you take the theology seriously and give readers a broad overview of how states have or how the, you know Sunni Islam and the Catholic Church view or could possibly get involved in state building under the circumstances they would do so. And I guess that's a good place to start with. Uh, you know, chapters two and three deal with the Roman Catholic Church and the state. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how the Catholic Church is related to the subject of state building. Well, with the Catholic Church, what's important is to distinguish prior to the Second Vatican Council and after the Second Vatican Council. So before the Second Vatican Council, there was certainly uh, a view towards the Roman Catholic Church having a role to play in the, with the, alongside the state in society. And uh, this this was very, the role, it didn't just all of a sudden come to an end in the Second Vatican Council. So prior popes had, over time, for example, um, banned uh, the clergy from participating in politics or had um, spoken out against um, the actions of some states. And so that was all coming to a fore in the, at the Second Vatican Council, where there was um, a document, um, Nostra Aetate, where it talked about the um, basically the separation of church and state, and the, the 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 role of the church being alongside the state as opposed to being a part of the state. And so there was. It, it, it's the it's the freedom of um, uh, freedom of uh, now I, I have to think back I think it's dignitatis humanae sorry uh, not nostra aetate so dignitatis humanae is the is the document where it's it's the freedom of of an individual to have the right to choose the religion they will pursue as opposed to the state saying that this country this society is a Roman Catholic society. It was basically saying that the Catholic Church now supports freedom of religion. And so that was a big shift for the Roman Catholic Church away from being uh, protected and having a monopoly of religion to uh, supporting now an open market 
of, of religions. And that shifted the direction to which then it could allocate its resources. Now, not all um, elements of the church equally moved in this direction. And that's why, obviously, you have differences in different countries and regions. The, the case study in, uh, that I took on, Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Catholic Church is being criticized as being a, a ethno-religious church as opposed to a universal church. And by ethno-religious, people mean that if you are born within a particular community, a particular ethnicity, that is Croatian, then you are seen as being Catholic. And so a Croatian can't be a Muslim. A Croatian can't be an Orthodox. A Croatian can only be Catholic. And similarly, for the Serbians who are Serbian Orthodox or the Bosniaks who are seen as Muslim. And so in that area is very much religio ethno-religiosity as opposed to this universal idea of religion. And so in, in different countries, this um, idea of, of freedom of religion not being imposed and embraced by the state has varied um, problematically in some countries where it's still associated to that degree. And so, you know, that's a the brief overview of, of what brings the Catholic Church to where it is now. And so then the next question is, well, how can the Catholic Church contribute to those three distinct um, criteria required for successful state building? So just to recap, it's legitimacy, uh, security, and uh, basic needs. And so looking at the Catholic Church, it has, um, because it is not only uh, a religious organization registered uh, domestically within a, a particular country, but because it has diplomatic standing on the international stage, it has a lot of legitimacy. And that legitimacy can be transferred to others um, as it so chooses through, for example, signing a concordat, which is the agreement between the Vatican and the country uh, outlining what the church uh, can do, what the church can't do, what the state will do, uh, the relationship basically between the church and the state. And by signing the concordat, by having bishops or cardinals stand alongside uh, a new government, by having them um, speak about uh, the importance of uh, participating in the democratic process, all of these are ways that the, a uh, very legitimate institution in the eyes of Roman Catholics, which is the Catholic Church, this very legitimate institution can transfer its legitimacy to a new authority. And, and just to compare and contrast, when you have a religion that doesn't have that international standing, where it doesn't have uh, the, the diplomatic ability to sign at a state level a treaty, in effect, a, an agreement, then it doesn't have that degree of standing that then we can transfer to others. So the Catholic Church in that regard is, is very unique. The other two being stability and basic needs, uh, I, if you think back, was it? I think it was Stalin who, who, who responded to the Pope by saying, how many divisions does the Pope have? Uh, yep. I, I had that question posed to me when I was early on um, preparing this research, when I was doing my doctorate, people were saying, well, how can any religious institution 
contribute to, to security. They don't have armies. They don't have any divisions. What are they going to do? But I think this is, this is very uh, short-sighted. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in different cultures and communities around the world, uh, different um, units within society contribute to security. So it could be tribal um, uh, tribal groups, for example, you may be reading in the news in Iraq how uh, tribal groups are mobilizing in response to Islamic State. So there certainly is an alternative source of security in, in, in tribal groups. Now, religion and religious groups, well, they have particular standing in society. And so what can they contribute to? Well, adjudication and mediation of disputes. That's absolutely something that's uh, very important. There was a survey done in um, in Afghanistan where in 2011 Asia Foundation survey where they asked the question of who do you go to when there is a dispute? And just under 30% 30, 30 of people said the first person we would go to is, is, a, is a religious leader. And, and, and what was interesting about that, the type of dispute that would, they would go to the uh, local uh, mullah would be not necessarily just family disputes, but it would also be things like disputes on land ownership issues. So even in the broader community, they would be involved. And so when we're talking about sta stability and security, it's not just this idea of um, peace building, so ending a war, there are what matters to communities is not necessarily the war, it's uh, which is the big picture, but what matters is um, cr local crime, extortion, kidnapping, um, uh, people um, taking property, uh, land disputes, environmental degradation. All of these more localized um, stuff can contribute to instability, and and that's just as important as the big higher level peace building element that most international um, people are focused on. So th this is uh, just a segue here. This is part of the problem of the international community's response to failed states is that the only way they can respond is send more soldiers or more police force into a country. But a, a soldier or a policeman who doesn't speak the language, doesn't understand the culture, isn't connected to the community, can't really delve down and respond to these local level uh, sources of instability and insecurity. Only local people can, only local groups can. And this is part of the problem with why we've had such a lackluster um, history of success with state building. So what else can religious institutions contribute? Okay, adjudication, mediation, and dispute. They also can contribute to building social capital. Uh, this is important because especially in countries where the conflict has led to uh, different bonded groups separating and, and conflicting. So for example, in Iraq, Sunni and Shia groups, uh, these are two fundamentally uh, separately bonded communities, and that's the tension within that country. And if a religious institution can help rebuild the ties that bind society together, then it can contribute to re uh, insecure, reducing insecurity and instability. 
Now, there's been a lot of research about this and uh, whether social capital actually does reduce crime levels, whether it does contribute to stability. Uh, while that research hasn't been done in war zones, it has been done elsewhere. And it, it has shown that it is, it is the largest driver or component that can be measured as contributing to uh, reducing crime. Because once people get to know each other, once people, communities are integrated and there is some levels of trust built between one another, then uh, crime reduces. So social capital is really important. Back to the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, through its, um, uh, its um, diocese and its parishes, and its um, priests and, and other clergy and lay um, officials can play a role in reaching out to the community, but it all their theology. It depends on what, how, how the local people interpret their theology. So, for example, again, with my case study in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the focus of the Catholic Church in Bosnia and Herzegovina was very much inward focused. So it was more about ensuring that the spiritual needs of, of the flock are being met as opposed to outward focused, um, which would, we would be more familiar with in the United States or Australia. And that is through, for example, organizing volunteer volunteers to go and um, you know, help the poor in, in communities, regardless of their faith, regardless of their ethnicity. Volunteering is a fundamental um, uh, mechanism through which social capital can be built because it's it's a means through which you are um, consciously dedicating time and resources to building your society that you live within and it's a mechanism then through which then we, you can build bridges across those differently bonded groups uh, it's different to you know doing a paid job where you, you're doing it for, for a particular reason so if the church if the Catholic Church focuses its, um, its, its, its community on um, building bridges across these bonded groups, then it can contribute to uh, building social capital. If it's inwards focused, if it's focused on spirituality, less likely to do so. And the one of how we can contribute, how a church can contribute to public security is, is socializing civic values. So basically, it's making sure that the Sermon talks about issues that are relevant to society, about not just the individual and how one can ensure to live a, a better life uh, uh, inwardly or for their family. It's also um, an opportunity for priests on a Sunday homily to be talking about uh, how important it is to look after your neighbours, how important uh, it is to ensure that regardless of the faith or of the ethnicity of your neighbours, that they're a part of the community, the community is important. And drawing on the scriptures to pull out those elements that emphasise this. And and if you think about those statistics I said at the beginning of this interview, 91% of people in fragile or failed states see religion as being important in their lives you can understand then that when a priest or an imam speaks and they speak from the pulpit or the minbar and they say something, then it is uh, in a very effective way through which to reach 
um, with, with the people to communicate a message. And of course, in, in some countries where there isn't that a high level of participation in, in, in the Friday prayers or the Sunday prayers, then uh, a lot of the religious institutions have satellite channels or they have publications, print, newspaper publications, and these also reach out to people. So just socializing these important civic values contributes to public security. The last one of the three, and I have gone on here a little bit, the last one is basic That's needs. That's all right. <laughs> the last one is, is provision of basic needs. Now, this is an obvious one that most people are familiar with. The Catholic Church has Caritas institutions, and and as I mentioned, 17,000 primary health care clinics around the world, 5,500 hospitals. It is an incredibly big humanitarian organization, and it has been criticized for being um, uh, too much focus on being a charitable NGO as opposed to a spiritual organization. This is some of the criticism that Pope Francis has received, and, and he has also rebutted it by saying it certainly should not be a, a charitable NGO. But nevertheless, it, 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 it can do that, and it does do that, and, and um, the Catholic Church is preeminent across all faiths in being the largest um, provider humanitarian assistance in conflict zones, and they're very good at it too. And this is something that we have to acknowledge is that the Caritas institutions that are established around the world in countries, they are established, trained, resourced, and, and, and can function immediately day one after a conflict. And it's not only the Caritas institution that's registered as an NGO, but they then support the local parish. And the parish then has a reach into the community. No other religious organization has the humanitarian capacity as the Roman Catholic Church. And so those are in looking at the three critical elements of successful state building, legitimacy, public security, and basic needs. That's largely how the Catholic Church can contribute. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was an interesting analysis in your book, and it, it, it provides a a perfect segue into comparing the Catholic Church as an institution and religion versus Sunni Islam. And this, just from not knowing a lot of, a lot of the, you know, ins and outs of, uh, of the topic, it would seem like to rat, to get, to distill the Sunni Islam and, uh, and state building would be a daunting task to undertake with all the different schools of thought and the different, uh, you know, approaches to Islam in the world. Did you find that uh, harder or am I just, they're both equally hard. Am I just crazy when I ask a question like that? I know you're spot on. With Islam, it was so much harder because with the Roman Catholic Church, there's a single institution with um, a number of documents that you can refer to the catechism of the Catholic Church, the canon uh, of the Catholic, the canon laws. And so it's easy to be able to look them up, look up the encyclicals of the different popes, look up the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and, and then use that as a basis when I was doing my field research and engaging with the um, priests and the bishops. But with Islam, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's very different. So to begin with, just an overview. So, of course, there's Sunni Shias on the main division between, within Islam. And then I embraced only Sunni Islam. And then within Sunni Islam, it, there are four schools of jurisprudence. Now, jurisprudence is a, a much more, um, uh, it's much larger focus within Islam than um, within Christianity. 
jurisprudence being uh, the laws by which uh, not only the faith should be practiced, but society should be structured. Uh, Islam is an orthopraxis religion, so it's focused on the correct practice, while um, Christianity is focused on um, the correct uh, understandings. Uh, so what you have with, within Islam is these four schools of jurisprudence, and then you have the Sunni Islam, and then you have mainly two schools of theology. Of those four schools, one, which was Hanafi school of jurisprudence, the others are Hanbali, Maliki, and Shafi. I chose Hanafi because I needed consistency with the case study, and that is Bosnia and Herzegovina. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, Hanafi school of jurisprudence is the, is the primary one that they abide by. And that Hanafi school emanated largely from uh, the Ottoman Empire, though it, it, its roots are earlier than the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottoman Empire spread it and entrenched it. And so countries that were formerly of the Ottoman Empire largely, say, are Hanafi. Hanbali, which is a lot more literalist school of interpreting the scriptures, so the school of jurisprudence uh, is one that has a lot more focus on literalist uh, interpretation rules. That's largely in Saudi Arabia. And then you have Shafi and Maliki, which are uh, on looking at West Africa, North Africa, and the other in Asia, uh, Pacific, Asia, Asia area. So... What distinguishes these largely are the, um, the prior rulings, and then prior to that is the rules by which they um, interpret the scriptures. And, and, and the scriptures, when I say scriptures, I, I mean the Quran and the Hadith, and the Hadith being the, um, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, um, when you interpret when, when a scholar interprets these uh, documents, these sources, um, the, to get the meaning out of them, you can literally read them, or you can read them through the use of metaphors, analogies, similes, and so forth. And so what distinguishes these schools is the emphasis upon these um, tools for interpretation, as well as as well as the breadth of the sources that they use. So while the Quran and Hadith are common to all, some will then extend a little bit further and say, well, if there's consensus on, um, amongst the community, then we will also take that as being affirmation that um, this is the will of God. So what's called ijma, the consensus throughout all of the, the scholars now, that's another question then, you know, what defines consensus is that the entire community is a particular scholars. These are all different layers of, of questions that are, have been asked through the centuries. Now, none of that necessarily was relevant to me because what, rather than me interpreting what Islamic theology says about state building, what I do is say, okay, now we've got a broad picture of how decisions are made within Islam when it comes to uh, important aspects of society, what I'm going to do is, is make sure that those questions that are key determinants for relevant to post-conflict state building are, are clear. And, and 
I take those out and, and that's what I focus on. So I don't say that this is right or wrong. I'm not saying that this is what they should or shouldn't believe. I'm not reinterpreting uh, the, the sources. I'm just the questions. And then with those questions, when I do the case study in Bosnia-Herzegovina, I, 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 I use those questions as the basis upon which to engage in that discussion around the relevant aspects. So, for example, when it comes to, I don't know, if we go back to, to legitimacy, uh, first question you would say is, okay, um, less a theological question, more a political science, social sciences question is, well, who can give legitimacy to uh, a new authority in Islam? So if, if you have an Islamic community, like some societies have, a formalized, structured community, not all do. So let's say in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, there's actually what's called Islamska Zajednica, which is Islamic community. That's the name. And it is registered, structured, it has a constitution, and it functions in that way with a, with a fatwa council that comes together. In other countries, you'd have a grand mufti who is sometimes appointed by the state, other times by the community. And then in other countries, you just have this dispersion of alternative centers of authority. So you have a grand mufti along with um, different associations, uh, along with, for example, in, in, in Egypt, you have Al-Azhar University, the oldest university in the world, uh, the center of learning for Islam, the most prestigious center of learning for Sunni Islam, and so um, they have a grand imam who uh, is uh, very well respected and regarded and is a center of authority. And so depending on the location, you have different individuals or groups of, or structures that can then confer authority to a uh, new, new, new group. Uh, now, where it differs from, differs from Christianity and where it's actually strong, stronger is that because Islam is a, a juridic religion, so it's, it's based on laws, uh, and it, 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 it does not hesitate to involve itself in adjudicating on the correct, what's correct and what's not correct, uh, it's a lot easier then for legitimacy to be conferred upon a new authority, a new state authority, because if there is a particular tradition within uh, Islam that's embraced in that community, and there is a record of how uh, in the past Islamic leaders have adjudicated on whether a particular authority is legitimate or it's not, then it can be continued into today and saying, well, the means by which this authority came to power was legitimate. And therefore, you have a lot more authority coming from Islam because it's based on on a clear historical uh, genealogy of not gene uh, a, a clear historical string of rulings that go all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad, and so there's real power there. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't do that, and so there's that's a you know a real difference there. Um, and another difference when we come to um, the theological perspective of, of Islam, for example, is we can talk about, okay, so what what is the, te the, the goal of 
the religion. So in Christianity, uh, I think most people would agree that salvation is the goal. And, and the role of the church is to facil facilitate salvation. So it could be to reduce the structures of sin that may distract individuals from the path towards salvation. It may be from the Catholic perspe perspective, uh, the provision of the sacraments, which then facilitate grace uh, that helps individuals to lead a better life or understand the direction that they should go. Now, Islam doesn't have that role for its institutions. There are no sacraments that the institution needs to uh, provide. So the, the question then is, well, what is what would motivate uh, an Islamic institution to contribute its resources to rebuilding a state? And, and to answer that question, you need to go back and say, well, what is the goal? What is the ultimate goal of within Islam? And uh, overwhelmingly, that is within a social structure, it is um, justice. It's uh, now... What does justice mean? That's often where it's disputed, and that's where people then go in different directions. But largely, justice is not just an inward-looking um, focus. It's not about yourself. It's not just about how you treat others. It's actually justice is a, a social um, justice, one that includes the system we live within, the social structures that we have have to be just. It, it would be closer to what we would refer to as social justice. And and so this goes back to what I was referring to at the very beginning, where I was saying within Islam, there's a lot more impetus for it to be involved in political aspects. Uh, and that is because its primary goal is to help facilitate the delivery of a just system. It, it doesn't have a focus on salvation like Christianity does. And so when you're looking from that perspective, justice is part, can, can be related then to so security and stability, that second aspect. It can be also related to legitimacy. Um, so if you're focused on justice, the, the, the authority that is in power needs to be a legitimate power that is contributing towards that. But more importantly, what's interesting is how justice relates to security and stability. Most Western um, scholars and policy decision makers would say, you know, we need to pursue peace. Peace is the ultimate goal. Uh, uh, it's um, a theologian, um, William Kavanaugh, has written how um, the state, the Western secular state, is in a sense uh, replacing the Christian ideal of salvation by this um, commitment to everlasting peace through the provision, the, the role of the state. Uh, and, and, and that's really what the Western world has pursued internationally. But what I'm saying from a perspective of, of Islam, uh, it is that justice is more important than peace. In some cases, peace may have to be given up because justice, because it will not be a just peace. And this is what's important when we're looking at will an Islamic institution contribute its resources to stability and security. Well, if the peace that has been arrived at isn't a just peace, then no, it will not. And that's the distinction where we get, where we start seeing the possibility for Islamic institutions to legitimately 
pursue other directions that don't align with the Western state building effort. Now, the other, the last part, the basic needs, um, from a from an Islamic perspective, let me let me just begin from a Catholic perspective. Um, pr providing arms, pr providing uh, charitable giving will help an individual if it was if it is genuinely given from the heart to to move closer to to um, salvation to achieving salvation. But uh, there is little role or impetus from for the institution of the church to provide charitable giving, even though it does in, in a, like I said, in, in, a, in an incredible level. Um, but the, the way it explains itself is that actually the church's role in, pro, in pro, providing um, basic services is to ensure, and, and this is um, drilling down into the theologies, that to ensure that people have access to the economy of salvation. And so that means that they can actually participate in making the choices that will either allow them to move closer to being saved or not. Uh, now, that means that it's providing charitable giving from the perspective of the institution is taking people out of absolute poverty and, and giving them an opportunity to participate in the economy of salvation. Now, from an Islamic perspective, there is... Um, it's it's quite different. Um, the blessed are not uh, the poor are not blessed in in Islam. Um, it, it's actually quite a um, strict religion in the sense that it, it does encourage people to better their lives, uh, and it, it it seems appears to reward them for doing that. So, what is the purpose of the provision of why why would an Islamic institution provide uh, resources to, to to basic needs or humanitarian resources. Well, one of the answers is that um, when a, a particular uh, theologian, say Nursi, talks about how um, it's very difficult to balance all of the competing um, directions that one gets from reading the Quran, um, and the way he explained it was, well, there are God, Allah has ninety nine names. And trying to to balance all of those ninety nine names is the is the goal that you seek in life. And so, for example, one of them may be mercy. And and the example he gives is a mother who hears a child crying may well give the child chocolate, being merciful. Seeing the wisdom and the mercy is is one of the important aspects within Islam. But finding that right balance, and and there are like I said ninety nine names, and so finding that balance between all of those. And so from the perspective of basic needs, why would an Islamic institution contribute? Well, I guess I draw upon that sort of analogy and say um, that there, there is an importance that society is a just society, that everyone has access to a bare minimum basis of um, humanitarian needs, uh, but without the negative being without creating a dependency. So that tension between mercy and wisdom is similar to our provision of services, humanitarian services, without giving too many where we create dependency, which is a common problem in international development. Um, communities yeah. become dependent upon 
the, the, the aid that is being given to them. So you can see here, I'll, I'll wrap it up, it's basically the, 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 the theology of both of these institutions really does influence how they allocate their resources, but not all of them in every location around the world will follow what I've just described. Some will provide a particular emphasis on, a, on one area of the, of the teachings and another will find other sources and, and focus on, on that. It's, in, it's interesting you mentioned that, and, and, and in general, I, I found the, the, the chapters on Islam very eye-opening in many respects. Uh, a couple of things stood out to me. Um, on page 95, you mentioned that, contrary to popular belief, that there's a separation of church and state in Islam that some people don't pick up on. I thought that was, was interesting, and I was wondering if you could say a little more about that. And another thing that I found interesting was, and I'm paraphrasing, I believe, but the idea that peace and justice can be served by letting events play themselves out. I think it made me think about how events unfolded in Iraq and in times in Afghanistan and it kind of crystallized in my mind. That made perfect sense how Muslims would some, at times were responding to state building problems in their, in their nations, if you want to use that term. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. so the separation uh, that you speak of, historically, the scholars have had a very special role in Islam and, and, and sometimes have been fated by the rulers. Sometimes the sultans have claimed the role of caliph, which means they're not only head of the armies, but they're also the senior most uh, scholars uh, within the Islamic community. But in general, the scholars have been separate from the sultans, from the, the temporal rulers. And, and they've, created, they've formed that uh, counterpoint to them. And now, this isn't always the case in every location, but that's been a, a consistent historical trend. And, and some of the criticism that, that one gets in current times, and as because you referenced uh, my book, I'll just reference a quote that Osama bin Laden used when he was criticizing Saudi Arabia for the support and engagement that they gave to the United States. He said that the worst of scholars is he who, who he referenced a, uh, a quote from history. The worst of scholars is he who visits princes, and the best of princes is he who visits scholars. And so th this is that, um, you know, tension between the two, the princes and the scholars. And then he writes that the forefathers of our Ummah, and that's the community, and their successors, have set a good example, and one of the most prominent characteristics of these righteous scholars was the way they disassociated themselves from the... Um, in the Middle East with Islamic State, you, you have the Caliph, Caliph Ibrahim, uh, they, they call him Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and he has a separate uh, council that looks after the interpretation and the application of uh, religious rulings. Now, he obviously has authority over it as, as being appointed as caliph, which, as I mentioned, includes then both the, the military and religious leader. But nevertheless, there's an acknowledgement that there's importance of that separate shura council, that, like a fatwa council, um, that, that, that they have. Now, your second question about peace and justice, absolutely, there's that tension there. And one of the problems is that there's this perception that peace is the ultimate goal. 
And if I can just recap here a short um, vignette from the Quran, uh, it's it's in um, um, eighteen sixty about eighteen sixty six, the um, chapter eighteen sixty six, verse sixty six, and and so um, the the idea here is that uh, Moses was traveling on his way and he came across um, a bondsman, um, God's representative on earth, and and. As they were traveling, um, Moses saw him doing things that he didn't understand and disagreed with. And these things included the bondsman putting a hole in, in a boat that, uh, that the fisherman owned. Um, he actually killed the child and he made uh, other children just dig a hole in a random place at a random time. Now, from Moses's perspective, he was frustrated that why on earth would someone who's God's person uh, be... Uh, killing someone else, the damaging, destroying the livelihoods of other people. And his response was, the bondsman's response was, well, what you did not see was that, the, that as I destroyed the boat that the fishermen had, the king's men were approaching and they were going to take that boat away from the king. But now, because it had a hole in it and it wasn't seaworthy, they let it be, but it was easy for the fishermen to fix the boat. <coughs> the child was killed because the child was going to grow up to be an evil child while the parents deserve a good child and they were to have a good child subsequently. The children, the orphans who were told to dig in some random place, they, they were told to dig there because they were good orphans, they deserved a better life and buried there in that hole was, was treasure. So the point being that we as humans, we can't foresee the consequences, every consequence of our actions. So what we think is good, peace, may not necessarily lead to justice. Only God knows what justice is. Only God can foresee what it is. And the only way that humans can um, contribute to that is by abiding by the, uh, the, the word of the Quran and the Hadith, what God had, had conveyed through the Prophet Muhammad. And, and so that's why, from an Islamic perspective, one would say, well, if I'm going to contribute, if, if this peace doesn't abide by the, the justice that God has conveyed through his scriptures, then I'm not going to support it. And so that's that very clear tension. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it, was, it was interesting reading. I can't do justice to it. And, you know, I have time considerations. Some of the other stuff about how you talk about uh, enforcing community morality. And uh, I believe, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the word right, the, the influence of the jinn on, ah, on, yeah. on people. I never, I mean, I have to admit my ignorance. I'd never heard of that before. Um, so I found that that's interesting reading for our listeners. When you pick up this book, you'll be certainly uh, learn a lot from, from the, from the chapters on Islam. Uh, in conclusion, I guess uh, the place to go would be to say perhaps a bit more about, uh, the situation in Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, in terms of, uh, you know, I can, you can lay it out on the table, but in terms of the tensions between uh, the Franciscans and, and the Catholic Church as far as, you know, ethnic tensions and, and so forth, and uh, the place of Islam in Bosnia-Herzegovina as it relates to state building. Sure. So what's unique, let me tackle Islam first, what's unique about Bosnia-Herzegovina is, is that it actually has a, a structured um, authoritative institution representing Sunni Islam. Uh, so it's it's odd in, in that sense. And this institution um, has a const has a constitution. It has different arms, a fatwa council that uh, um, disperses uh, fatwas depending upon the questions that have been asked. 
Um, it has a Raishal Aluma, which is like a grand mufti, like a senior most uh, mufti who is consulted uh, as required. And so in that context, it was a very powerful institution by which he could contribute to the state building process. But interestingly, it didn't fully utilize some of the aspects that I talked about earlier in this interview. So when I met with the muftis and imams in Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, I asked them, for example, I asked them, did you um, use the traditions or, or the, the jurisprudence the historical jurisprudence within Hanafi uh, Islam uh, uh, that that would have legitimated the new authorities that you uh, that have been elected here, and they said no, they didn't do that. Although they could have, because it really did tick all of the boxes, the processes through which um, the state building process had occurred. Now, the reason they said that they didn't was because there was that period of of communist rule in the former Yugoslavia, where the when the religious leaders were allowed to have a public voice, they were mainly focused inwardly on uh, you know on history, culture, um, uh, practice of religion, and not on the social aspects of religion. And, and one of the um, scholars who's who's um, a senior scholar within the Islamic community in Bosnia-Herzegovina criticized this to me. He said, this is one of the problems and failings of our uh, up-and-coming and, and, and senior um, clerics is that they are not engaged fully in the social aspects of Islam. Uh, and so that's that, that was an interesting uh, point there. Uh, now, from the basic needs perspective, again, looking at the three components of, of state building, they were very poor there because they weren't organized. They didn't have a humanitarian body. There were other Muslim uh, NGOs that they supported, but very poorly resourced. Now, if you look at the Roman Catholic side, they also had the strengths and weaknesses that were unique to Bosnia and Herzegovina. As you mentioned, though, the Franciscans and the and the diocesan aspect of the church. And so the Franciscans, being a religious order, they had come there um, effectively as missionaries in the 15th and 16th century and had stayed there and, and, and only... After some time, um, you know, if, I, if I remember correctly, it was only after the Austro-Hungarians had taken over that province of Bosnia that the church had made it as a diocesan uh, establishment. That means a part of the normal hierarchy and structure as opposed to missionary lands. And, and, and so there's this tension where the, the Franciscans actually shouldn't be running parishes, but they are. They should be moving out of uh, playing those roles and handing it over to the normal parish uh, diocese uh, province structure. Uh, but that uh, is creating some tensions, and um, some of those tensions are evident in the roles that they play. Now, the Franciscans, having a lot more historical roots in the community, have a lot more legitimacy uh, in the eyes of the people. But the, the church a little bit less so because it's 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 associated with Croatians, as I was saying before. It's an ethno-religious type of uh, religion, and so it's it's associated with actually what has become a separate state. And so some people saw see it as having less legitimacy, and and I think the Roman Catholic Church took that into account because 
they didn't rush to um, sign a concordat with the government of Bosnia and Herzegovina. They didn't rush to establish different ordinariates that are like you know a um, outreach to the uh, to the military or other um, structural elements that are standard in any country within the Catholic Church. Um, and so the, it was this slowly, slowly approach which has which has worked well. But that tension between the Franciscans and, and the Catholics has then weakened its ability to legitimize uh, the, the state. But but on the flip side, um, the fact that the, the the Catholic Church eventually did sign a concordat with Bosnia and Herzegovina, in my mind, um, actually contributed substantially to the legitimacy of the state because he was saying. We acknowledge now, we recognize that you are separate to Croatia, you are an independent state, and we're going to treat you at that level. And so there are, these were the different tensions that occurred uh, in the state building process in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Excellent. Uh, I, I hate to do this, but I, I feel obligated to, uh, to draw on your vast experience and vast knowledge of the subject too. Uh, more or less, tell us how to save the world. Uh, what, what what lessons do you think if you're sitting next talking to people, policymakers, whether they're in the U.S., Australia, Canada, wherever the Middle East, based on your research, based on your vast experience with the subject, what are you? What do you think are the most important lessons about state building that could, you know, bring about a better planet than we, we currently inhabit? Well, one of the key problems is that we inevitably always um, when we get involved in foreign forays whether it's state building or whether it's just a conflict immediately afterward we're always um, trying to shape a society in our own image which I find really interesting because it's like you know uh, in Christianity we were born in the image of God it's Imago Dei this idea that uh, and and yet we and and then we do the same with other states. We're recreating them in our image. Now that doesn't necessarily always work. It often doesn't work, and this is part of the problem. Uh, so what I would suggest needs to happen a lot more is that there are senior level, ambassador level uh, people who are in, included at the at the um, planning process stages and implement, implementation stages when we do engage in state building. So in Iraq and Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, Syria in the future, what would happen is there would be the senior military generals in Iraq, you know, two, three, four star, uh, two, three star generals, or you would have an ambassador, senior ambassadors who would look after the civilian side. Now, um, there has to be more inclusion of people who understand uh, religion and understand the local context. It doesn't need to be a cleric. Probably better not, because there are sometimes often the possibilities of tensions arising, uh, accusations of favoritism from one to another. But nevertheless, it could be possible. Um, there's no reason why, for example, the former Reisal Aluma of Bosnia and Herzegovina couldn't be an advisor uh, in... Uh, any peace building and uh, state building effort in Syria because um, Syria being largely Sunni uh, Muslim or overwhelmingly Muslim uh, would welcome um, the voice of someone uh, like Mustafa Cerich, who's who, who was 20 years the Raisal Luma. So that would be my number one recommendation is to ensure that there is 
someone who has a, a senior voice uh, uh, and access representing the views uh, of the religious community. Other things will be more for all policymakers who are engaged to ensure that they are familiar and aware of the local culture and values, to try to step out of their own shoes and to see what what is important to other people. What are their goals in life? What do they want to achieve? What kind of society do they want to build? And when you understand that, only then can you start saying, well, okay, this is what we're going to contribute. This is the type of program we're going to have. These are the people that we will engage with. Unless you have that, you're just setting yourself up for failure. And this is what we do all too often. I just had uh, the image of Jerry Bremer floats <laughs> in, my in my face right now. And his I remember some of his early speeches talking, and he's not alone. I, I hate to pick on him, but he talking about how they would rebuild. The U.S. could rebuild Iraq because we rebuilt Germany. Yes. <laughs> or Japan. Or, and Bush did this, too. And at the time, it struck me as, as you know, cr almost crazy talk. But that a lot of the rhetoric went around those types of examples. Well, exactly. You, you, you see it as crazy talk because as a historian, you understand how different cultures and societies have changed through history and what has shaped those changes. Now, the neoconservative view that dominated at that time was that it was more a functionalist approach where he said, okay, as long as you've got these elements in their state, then it will uh, function effectively. So what do we need? Tick box. We need elections. I won't even say democracy because democracy is a lot more complicated. So they went tick box. We need elections. Tick. Uh, we need uh, a free market. Tick. So what did they do? They sold off all of the state-owned enterprises. What was the consequence of that? Well, there was mass unemployment and industry was demolished. But nevertheless, tick markets, free markets. What else do we need? Uh, we need a eliminate the Bath Party because it, it's uh, it was from before. We need um, uh, multi-party not just single party, we multi-party elections, get rid of the Ba'ath Party. What, what did that happen? Well, they were, the, they were all the people who knew how to run a country. You get rid of them, you have people who don't know how to run a country. And so, and this continued, you know, we want a secular society. We're not going to consult with the religious leaders. Uh, and on and on it goes. And this is part of the problem. There is this preconceived notion of what is required for a functioning society based on our own functions society just just to finish this off it was just a funny story when i was in iraq um i was spending some time with the bedouins out near the border of saudi arabia and they had me over one night and we were talking and this was in 2003 and they were saying uh well um ah ah ahmed talibi one of the contestants uh for the um prime minister uh, for the prime ministership i think it was at the time or, or, or head of the governing council, I can't remember what it was, um, said um, he, gave, he gave us a car and he wants now the tribe to vote for him. And I'm not sure what to do about this. And I was thinking, you know, this is the fundamental problem here is that the, the society is structured in a way that democracy really becomes a census. It's not a democracy. It's a census of based on sectarian uh, tribal um, structures. And, and you had the Americans come in talking about ex establishing caucus systems. Now, I, I'm Australian. I don't know what a caucus is. I don't know how your caucus is working in uh, Iowa. But this is 85 percent, if not more. I, maybe I'm being generous, probably less than that. 
know what the, what a caucus is if you ask them on the street. Right, and then then people were walking around Iraq saying we're going to establish we're going to have elections based on caucus system. What? Uh, and so, yeah, th these were certainly some of the problems. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing, and I, I will, I, you know, I, I've taken up so much of your time today, but I will, uh, for like to make a plug for this book. It's 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 a great way to, to read it and think about religion in different ways than traditionally dominates the discourse. At least, I mean, you've read way beyond I have what I have in the subject. But a lot of the talk about religion, at least that I read, is still framed in debating the utility of the Huntington thesis about the class of civilizations and seeing it as a force for disintegration in the world. And you're actually changing the framework around a little bit and asking, you know, how can religion actually contribute to peace and stability? And I think it's a, another angle to look at the subject rather than debating whether Huntington is right or wrong and whether we're, you know, moving towards these you know, terrible battles based on religion with fundamentalism seemingly on the rise. Absolutely. And thanks for that nice plug. Right, I, I do my best here. And uh, to conclude the interview, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your future plans in research and or teaching. Well, my, my focus at the moment is to look at Syria uh, and specifically starting to look at the religious institutions there. I hope to have a paper out sometime next year uh, on, um, in a similar way structured to the chapter I did on Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that is looking at what are the different religious institutions, what are their theologies, how, what do they believe in, um, how are they structured, and then marry that up to what is required for successful state building, because sooner or later, eventually, uh, Syria will have to be um, supported by the international community in its efforts to not only bring peace, but rebuild the state. And when that happens, we have to understand the religious structures there and, and, and what level they are capable of contributing to that state building process. So that's my focus of research at the moment. Sounds interesting. Uh, once again, Dennis, thank you for speaking with me. Um, to the listeners out there, you'll benefit from reading this book. It's an interesting read. It gives you much food for thought, and I certainly learned a lot from it. And I wish you the best of luck down the line with your endeavors. Oh, I appreciate it, and thanks for doing this. I love your podcast. Thank you.